Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 27 of Greens with Envy, the podcast produced by Golf Course Industry that takes you on the road all over the United States and sometimes even the world. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of Golf Course Industry Magazine, joined today by my friend and colleague Guy Cipriano. Guy has put together a format for this episode that, goodness gracious, the oldest continuous golf course in the United States, year-to-date rounds, some golf book talk, so, so much, and we'll bring Guy in in just a second. But first, this episode of Greens with Envy actually has a sponsor, and it is sponsored today by Spectrum Technologies. Maintain healthy championship caliber turf at your golf course with Spectrum Technologies. Their products work together to keep your greens in optimal playing condition. With their measurement technologies, superintendents get reliable data, reliable data that you can actually use to make informed decisions on irrigation, on fertilizing, on pest management, and so much more. They remove the guesswork from caring for your course. Learn how others around the globe are using Spectrum Technologies to achieve the most playable turf, or you can share your success story at hashtag ToMeasureIsToKnow, T-O-MeasureIsToKnow, ToMeasureIsToKnow, hashtag Spectrum Technologies. For more information, visit specmeters, S-P-E-C, meters.com today, specmeters.com, Spectrum Technologies. Thanks so much for sponsoring Greens with Envy episode number 27. And now it is Golf Course Industries Editor-in-Chief, Guy Cipriano. Hi, Matt. It's great to be here. And I have a question for you. Do you have a TDR for your yard yet? I do not, but my backyard is super, super soggy. It took me almost an hour to mow a postage stamp last night because the yard was so wet that my little mower, uh, and I will not say which brand I own, because uh, it is one of our advertisers, clumped up four times to no fault of the mower. It was completely my fault for having to wait days and days and days after a week of rain. Sounds like you need to incorporate some data into your yard management. I probably should. There's a lot. It's a tiny yard, but I'm going to have to edge more than I have ever edged. So I know a lot of our listeners, edging is just a rudimentary thing, a skill they learned when they were probably eight or nine or 10 years old or maybe in high school. And I never got around to it. So I am I am garbage with an edger, and I'm going to have to learn real quick to keep my yard looking good. Anyway, let's get on to some <laughs> golf courses. Yeah, my yard is uh, the tiny – my yard isn't big enough to be a miniature golf hole. So let's talk about where you've been. I teased just a minute ago, oldest continuous golf course in the United States. You have built this as one of the more significant courses that you've probably never heard of. It is Foxburg Country Club, and it was founded in 1887. 1887. That's more than 130 years ago. That's incredible. Do you know what happened in 1887? Well, I know because you put on the notes that there was the first Groundhog Day observed in nearby Punxsutawney. And amazingly, it's the same groundhog that was alive then that's alive today. He's immortal. I'm not sure about that, but I have met Punxsutawney Phil, Matt. You've mentioned this. I guess you want the details, or the listeners probably want the details now. Why not? Did you hang out with Bill Murray? No. Okay. So I lived in central Pennsylvania for 12 years and made a lot of great friends, and this was four years ago. Got invited to the wedding of one of them, and he married a woman from Punxsutawney. So the the wedding was in Punxsutawney at at a beautiful wine vineyard. 
uh, awesome wedding. They had a pavilion outdoors. Well, she was well-connected in the Punxsutawney community. So you know who was at the wedding? Punxsutawney Phil. Punxsutawney Phil and his Gestapo. Man, I've never seen a celebrity have more uh, protection and handlers around him than Punxsutawney Phil. Pretty fascinating. They they brought the cage and Phil to the wedding. And like the guys you see on TV when you watch the ceremony with the black hats and the, and, and, and the you know, the formal wear were, were there handling him. And I've never seen a celebrity more coddled than Punxsutawney Phil at this wedding. And they brought him out of the cage, but it was only for a few minutes. You couldn't you couldn't pet him. Of course and, not. And He'd if you tried to take a picture with him, you you had to look a different way than the groundhog because you didn't want to you didn't want to freak him out. But it was so cool to see such a uh, a significant critter, and it was great to see a, a groundhog that wasn't tearing up a golf course. Isn't Punxsutawney Phil's entourage, are they called the Inner Circle? Is that right? There's a name for them, and there's a committee, and I can't think of it right now, but Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, is all in with the groundhog theme. You you, you walk around the downtown area, and there are groundhog paintings. I think there's some groundhog statues. There are things called, like, the Chuck Cafe. The high school is called the Punxsutawney Chucks, and oh it's a place that's really gone all in for its signature event. Uh, when I was at that wedding, before the wedding, I checked out Gobbler's Knob, which which is where they have the, the celebration and the ceremony. And when I lived in Pennsylvania, I remember on uh, February 2nd, I'd wake up early and watch the, the entire thing on the Pennsylvania Cable Network. And I would say, okay, I'm going to get there next year. I'm going to get a group together and go next year. And then I didn't go next year. And then I'd say, okay, I'll go the year after that. And while I haven't made it to the festival yet, but it is really uh, quite a tradition. And it puts a small Pennsylvania community into the national spotlight for one day every year. So yeah, Punxsutawney Phil was created in 1887. The first Groundhog Day observed in Punxsutawney was the same year that Foxburg Country Club opened, and Foxburg Country Club's at most an hour from Punxsutawney. And it is funny that you bring up Punxsutawney Phil in 1887 because the same year, just a month earlier, with rodents you have a higher chance of, of contracting rabies. Louis Pasteur who is most famous for pasteurization, Louis Pasteur's anti-rabies treatment is defended uh, in the Academia Nacional de Medicine, uh, not by him, but by another doctor. Also notable because about 50-odd years later, something terrible happened there. The U.S. Senate allowed the Navy to lease Pearl Harbor as a naval base and, kind of pertinent to what we have going on here, the Amateur Athletic Union was formed in the United States. So this club... Uh, which we've been dancing around for a few minutes, Foxburg Country Club, is almost as old as the Amateur Athletic Union, one of the very few golf courses that, uh, at least in the United States, that can claim to have been almost as old as the AAU. You know what else happened in 1887? One of the great universities that has an awesome turf grass management program, the formation of that started in 1887, man. Explain. Well, what's now known as NC State or North Carolina State in Raleigh, North Carolina, was founded as North Carolina College of Agriculture and Mechanic Arts, rolls right off the tongue, NCCAMA. And congrats to our friend, Dr. Jim Kearns, who just made the jump from associate professor to a full tenured professor. So congratulations to Dr. Kearns. I'm not sure if you're listening or not, but we can't wait to get back down to the Carolinas and Mm -hmm. play golf with you and Lee Butler again. And worth noting that in case folks missed it, and I don't think many did, I think everybody heard, and it's, it is exciting news, the Carolinas Conference and Show is officially going to be in person again in about six months, which I am thrilled about. We will see you in Myrtle Beach, and we cannot wait to get 
back down there and see everyone again. Yep. Also in 1887, the great shoeless Joe Jackson, most famous for his time with the Chicago White Sox. I still don't think he really threw the 1919 World Series, but banned for life all the same. Also played for uh, the Cleveland Indians. I believe they were the Indians at the time. They might have might have been pre-1919 when they changed their name. Were they the Cleveland Spiders maybe then, Matt? No, they were actually the – that's a different – we are really going into the weeds here, but that was actually a different baseball franchise. The Spiders were a National League organization that played until 1899, and then there was no baseball in 1900 in Cleveland, and then in 1901, the American League formed, and the organization that today is the Indians was one of eight charter members. I I used to know all the names. They played as the, I think it's the Blues, the Bronchos, or Broncos with an H, and the Forest Cities, and the Naps, and they were the Naps most famously until about 1914, named for Hall of Famer Napoleon Lajaway. If you really want to go down a groundhog hole, ask Matt what he thinks of the Spiders as a potential nickname for the Major League Baseball in Cleveland. Mm, if it happens, it happens at this point. I'm, I'm, I'm mellowed. Well, it's good to hear that you mellowed because when that idea was initially brought up, you certainly weren't mellow about it. Well, it, it still embraces one of the... Worst seasons in baseball history. But this is not a baseball podcast. This is a golf podcast, and we are talking first about Foxburg Country Club. So enough about 1887, which is also just 22 years after the Civil War ended. That's how far back we go. Let's talk about Foxburg Country Club. Where is it? Who works there? And what were your impressions? Well, a little background. So I decided to get together with one of my friends who lives outside State College, Pennsylvania, for a Saturday of golf. And we were looking for a place to play that was approximately halfway between where I live outside Cleveland and where he lives outside State College. So started doing some searches of what was along Interstate 80. And then I said, I saw Foxburg Country Club, and it's a place that I'd always been intrigued about. I knew that it had quite a history and it went way, way, way back. So I sent my friend Brandon a text. I said, we're going to play here uh, for our morning around. And it's a nine-hole course, and he was all in. Really super cool place. So we get there. It was 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning. We were the first people there. Really dreary day, uh, the type of day where, you know, only us hardcore golfers are (laughs) out. So before teeing off, we spent some time in the clubhouse, and the clubhouse is home to the American Golf Hall of Fame, and they have a little museum upstairs, and they let us up there, and that really gave us a great sense of history of the place. So, yeah, Foxburg Country Club established 1887 by a gentleman named Joseph McKeel Fox. And Joseph McKeel Fox was from Philadelphia, had a chance to go over to the United Kingdom on a tour with the Marion Cricket Club. Hmm. Went over there. Somehow they made their way to St. Andrews. Somehow he met old Tom Morris. Comes back to Pennsylvania where he was living. His family owned thousands upon thousands of acres in this part of Northwest Pennsylvania where Foxburg Country Club is and uh, went about starting his own golf course. And it started with five holes, eventually became nine holes. And golf has been played there every single year since 1887. And it is believed to be the longest continuous in-use golf course in the United States. In fact, some people are thinking, well, what about St. Andrews Club in New York? I, I, you know, Maybe they're thinking that that was the first one, and that was the uh, uh, certainly early. But St Andrews didn't start playing golf until 1888, according the to all next year all records. And then wow. the uh, you know the the Oakhurst links at at the Greenbrier or near the Greenbrier in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. Uh, actually, that was established in 1884, 
but that closed in 1912, and then it was restored in 1994, and then again, it's been closed since the the flood at the Greenbrier in 2016. So, uh, Oakhurst is older, but it's, it has not been in continuous use. So, this is a very historic piece of land that I don't think a lot of people know about because I mentioned to some of my industry friends that live in Pittsburgh and Cleveland that I had played there and they said they had never been there and it's right off of Interstate 80. I mean, it's only like two and a half miles off the interstate and think of how many people travel Interstate 80 through Pennsylvania going from Chicago to to New York. It's not like it's a lightly traveled interstate here, but uh, the place just oozed history and the the clubhouse was kind of like a log cabin type feel. So we had a good time waiting out the weather, just checking out some of the artifacts. They had, um, a lot of old golf balls, you know, they had a display showing the progression of the golf ball from the feather ball to the gutty percha to the the, the rubber ball. Uh, had old club he- heads, had some memorabilia for some people that had played the course over the years, had a display for J- Joseph Mickle Fox, had an old Tom Morris display, and then um, not even quite sure what the American Golf Hall of Fame is, but they, they had plaques for some of the inductees, and the, they're probably the people who you would think would be in American Golf Hall of Fame, you know, some of the bigger names that it played the game at the highest level. So, you know, we eventually get out on the golf course and it's this nine hole course and we played it twice. So we played, you know, one set of tees for one nine, one set of tees for the other nine. And it's a total of uh, 52, 53 yards, but it packs a mighty punch. And you talked about having a small backyard. There were greens on this course that were probably as small as your backyard, Matt. So imagine hitting even, you know, even if you're hitting a 60 yard, shot into a, a green that's maybe only a thousand square feet or even smaller than that. Mm-hmm. That, that that's not an easy easy golf shot uh hilly which is what you would expect for western pennsylvania mm-hmm. a lot of slope on the greens you didn't want to be below uh above the hole uh even on a wet dreary day there were there were some four putts between my friend brandon and i you know you just got in the wrong place and the first time you go around it you were trying to figure out what it was all about uh some cool mounding especially on the on the seventh hole which is a short par four and just these two awesome like fescue-like mounds that that protect this small green. Uh, there was a awesome green on the the par three six hole, just uh, f- uh, kind of squared off in the front, and just just awesome undulations. Just a really fun place to get around. We got around quick. There's some bunkers on the course that they're working on restoring. Um, they're going through a superintendent transition. The long, I was, was going to ask okay. the longtime superintendent Jeff Texter re- retired after his 43rd year there and. That uh, they have a committee of members that run the golf course, and they're they're grooming somebody from the position, from what I understand, and only have a crew of two people working in the pro shop, two on the golf course. Members pitch in and help take care of the golf course. There's about a hundred local members there. We met a few of them uh, just randomly when we were out on the course, and they they were um, very very uh, awesome to deal with. In fact, I didn't know who they were. I posted some pictures on Twitter after we got out of there, and. One of the members that I, I met actually saw the picture, and he turned out he was the club president, a guy named Leo, who who lives right along the golf course. There's some homes there, so uh, made a connection with him, and you know, hopefully we get a chance to go back there and write about some restoration efforts and what's going on. It's not that far from us, but you really did feel like you were back in time. And also, uh, next to each tee mat, they had these cement blocks that had sand in one opening and water in the other so if you want it to make your own sand tees you could have played the golf that way hmm. i did it once on a part three uh teed up the ball made the sand tee and just absolutely like um got way under the shot and it was a 160 yard hole my ball maybe went 100 yards 
but it's cool that you can play the game that way. They have hickory club tournaments there because it's not oh. a longer golf course. You can play it with the hickories. You know, they asked us if we wanted to use the hickories, but uh, I guess we were either too cool, too modern, or just not adventurous enough to to do that. But well, you know who would have said yes in a heartbeat and probably would have just brought his entire own bag of hickory clubs. Yeah, the gentleman I was just talking to on the phone Correct. before we recorded, our friend Matthew Wharton, America's Greenkeeper, at Carolina Golf Club in yep. Charlotte. Um, yeah, I've already told Matthew that you know one day we're going to get him up to Northeast Ohio and take him to all these cool places that we talk about on the podcast or send him pictures of. Uh, Foxburg is certainly on that list. It's on the National Register of Historic Places, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> Not a lot of golf courses have that designation. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of community pride with the course. So less than 200 people live in Foxburg, Pennsylvania. It's a borough. It's along the Allegheny River. A really scenic um, small town. After a round of golf, we ate at a place called the uh, Allegheny Grill, I believe it was called. You're looking at the scorecard. Do they advertise on the scorecard? Yep, they advertise on the scorecard. If you brought your receipt, <laughs> you got 10% off food, although awesome. we paid using Foursquare, and I don't think we had a receipt. We uh, They have a did. You know, it's kind of cool. Of course, it was established in 1887, has definitely modernized itself. They have the, uh, when you go in the clubhouse, you just pay through, book your tea time through Foursquare and just put your credit card in the uh, little tablet and off hmm. you go, which is it, which is which is a sign of a, a, a good facility and one that's going to be around for uh, hopefully another 135, 134 years, if my math is right. 134, yeah. And I was going to ask because you said that Jeff Texton? Texter. Texter, yeah. Jeff Texter, the superintendent. Retired after 43 years. Do you have any idea how many or how few superintendents there have been at the course since 1887? Couldn't find any history on that. You know, if we ever do end up writing about Foxburg Country Club, which I suspect now we will at some point because <laughs> it's not it's not too far from us. And it would be a great story. I mean, who would not want to read a story about a golf course that's 134 years old? Mm-hmm. So we will look into that. But, yeah, there's some continuity there, and we talked about on the last podcast just uh, having a defined identity and continuity, how important they are. Well, mm-hmm. Foxburg knows what it wants to be. It wants to be known as the oldest continuous in-use golf course in the United States, and they're doing what they can to preserve that that look and feel. And there was obviously some continuity in the, the superintendent position to have someone there for 43 years. So, and, and amazing that the course was almost 90 years old when he got there. Yep. That's wild. Yep, and there's a, a rock... Uh, right by the ninth tee that lets you know where the original five holes were. All the signage there looks throwback. Um, actually, one of the uh, board members found out I was there, too, and sent me an email and apologized because they were getting ready to put up new hole signs, and the hole signs weren't out, out there. And, and I wasn't going there in a golf course industry capacity. I was going out there in a capacity to play golf with a friend that I had not seen for, oh, geez, I had not seen Brandon for over a year. And um, we both had a blast. And I think that's another point here is never let the yardage of a course dictate whether you're going to play it or not. You know, some people might say, oh, you know, the course is only nine holes and I got to play different tees each time. And it's only 5,253 yards or, you know, 5,253 yards. Oh, I'm, I'm too good to play something like that. Never judge a golf course on its scorecard or the whole yardage is because I can assure you that Foxburg gave us everything that we could handle. And I'm, I assure you, even if you could, you know, drive – some of these greens. I mean, the first hole, 309. The the seventh hole, which I alluded to, 310. The ninth hole, 317. They they might look short and easy on the scorecard, but even if you drive it close to those greens, I can guarantee you, you're not going to have an easy chip or pitch shot or wedge shot into it. And the holes have some cool names. I, I didn't really find out the, the, the history of them, but the first hole is called Yellow, which I, I didn't understand. Uh, the second hole, 
is called long, which 180 yard par three is considered long. Third hole called hill. Well, yeah, your second shot played uphill. Fourth hole called glory. I guess that's because a creek intersected the fairway and you either had to decide whether you're going to play short of the creek or, or try to blast it over it. Uh, the fifth hole, the only part five on the course called 10 strike. I don't know why it's called that. I think Brandon did make a 10 on the hole. Maybe that's why it's called that because it's known to give golfers a, a bad hole. The six, which I alluded to, which had the cool green with the flat front and the, the awesome undulations, that's called Putter's Grief. I get that name. There could be some three or four putts there. Uh, number seven called Shiel, S-H-E-O-L. I have no idea what that means. Hmm. Number eight, par three called Chestnut Tree. I get that. There are some chestnut trees on the course. And number nine, and this brings us back to Shoeless Joe Jackson, was called Baseball. Real quick, Shoal. Or Sheol, actually, S-H-E-O-L, you were right. Sheol, it's a Hebrew term, and in the Hebrew Bible, it's a place of darkness to which the dead go. So Interesting. It up, did, uplifting the whole name. Well, it's probably has something to do with those two mounds that I mentioned in front of the green that just kind of have that cool classic look. I did drive it, like, right behind one of those mounds, like, behind the flat area in the mound, and I, I couldn't get my second shot out of there. I had, I had to play sideways, so maybe that's why it's called, because of called that because of the the hazard on the hole. This may not come as too much of a surprise when you think about it, giving the pronunciation Sheol, but when the Hebrew scriptures, and this is just from Wikipedia, I'm not diving super deep into the history of the term, but when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek about 2,200 years ago, ancient Alexandria, the word Hades, the Greek underworld, sometimes referred to as hell, was substituted for Sheol. So Sheol in the Hebrew Bible became Hades in the Bible about 200 BCE, and a lot of people will equate Hades with hell. So Sheol, hell, kind of makes sense. Well, this place was anything but hell. <laughs> I would consider Foxburg Country Club heaven if you like history and golf. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. It, it never really gets that crowded from what I understand, so you can play a nine pretty briskly, play 18 briskly. It's, like I said, right off of Interstate 80, and Matt, it's a place we're going to get you to. Because we need to get sure. you to Buell Park for the uh, free golf story, which is on the Pennsylvania-Ohio border. And then I think we'll have you just make your way to Foxburg after that. So we'll have you go and uh, play the free golf course and then play the oldest golf course in the United States. Buell Park, one of a handful of free golf courses around the country. That's been on the back burner for a while. But now that travel is starting to open back up again, I have my first course visit in, gosh, I don't even, probably about almost 15 months coming up in a few weeks. I won't say where, but I'm very excited about that. We won't give too much away, but I believe it has Fox in its name. Hmm. I'm not saying anything. Anyway, let's get to some golf course industry housekeeping stuff. We usually do this at the beginning, but we're going to do it in the middle and we'll do it fast. Yeah, we jumped in with a little course talk, so that was more fun. We have a few surveys going out throughout the rest of this year. Obviously, the State of the Industry survey goes out near the end of the year, but this year, in addition to those, we'll have a few starting with the POA Annua Control Survey. If you receive this, just take a few minutes, maybe five minutes, maybe ten if you really want to dive in. Fill it out as best as you can. The more responses, as always, that we get, the better the results and the better the information for all of you in return. So if you get it, help out your industry brothers and sisters Take five or ten minutes, and you'll get better results. And maybe the course will look a little better. Maybe you'll have a little less POA if that is 
what you desire. The Wonderful Women of Golf podcast with golf course industry contributor Rick Wolfel returns in June. We have already welcomed two incredible guests in the first two episodes, Sue Spar and Jennifer Torres. Listen to those on the Superintendent Radio Network. If you have not already, go back and look those up from February and April. In June, Rick talks with a very talented young researcher. That's all I'll say. Turfheads Grilling continues our year-long partnership with AquaAid Solutions, promoting grilling on and around the course. If you have photos, whether it's on the grill or on plates, whether it's at home or at the maintenance facility, whether it's with your family or your work family, send those in to hashtag TurfheadsGrilling and tag GCI Magazine and Solutions for Turf. Solutions, the number for turf. And we're grilling some fun stuff up for that program. We just had a meeting here internally. Uh, make sure you follow Solutions for Turf, Aquade Solutions on Twitter. They're already giving out some swag. They've had some apron winners. Mm-hmm. They give a pin to anyone that submits pictures or a recipe. And we had an internal golf course industry meeting two days ago with our director of marketing, Irene Sweeney, and our national accounts manager, Russ Warner, and our genius creative director, Jim Blaney. And you'll be seeing some turf heads grilling swag coming from golf course industry too, but I don't want to give too much away. Finally, our May print issue is actually out in the wild right now. We already have our copies, so you should be receiving yours in the mail very soon. It's already online at golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine if you just can't wait. And we are hard at work on the June issue. There are some really good stories in there too. Are we really hard at work? I am. Speak for yourself. No, we're we're busting it to to put a awesome June issue out. We bust it every month, but really looking forward to it. There are going to be some cool stories in that. And we have an intern now, young Jack Gleckler, who's a rising senior at Ohio University. He's joined our team, joined it this week. I'm not sure he knows what he's getting into yet, but he's already doing a great job three days in, and he's going to start making some story calls, and you're going to see his name in the magazine and on the website here shortly. Today is day four for Jack and his third day in the office. If you want, if you are uh, on Turf Twitter, you can give him a follow at the Jack Gleckler, T-H-E-J-A-C-K-G-L-E-C-K-L-E-R. I think that's it on housekeeping. Before we dive into the next segment, which is a pretty uplifting segment, let's, uh, you know, it's almost noon here. Year-to-date rounds... We talked about this the other day. These are really, really impressive numbers. I want to reserve some judgment really until the May and really the June numbers come out because last year was so slow, uh, if there were any rounds at all, in March and most of April. But that said, year-to-date rounds, uh, this is from the uh, Golf Data Tech and the National Golf Foundation, up 24.3% through April compared to 2020, or is that through March? I'm sorry. And March rounds, again, take this with a grain of salt because a lot of courses were closed for about half of March, but March rounds up 45.3% compared to last year, and public rounds up about 25.2% compared to last year. So all very, very strong numbers. Again, take it for what it's worth just because courses were closed for a lot of last March and April, but these are, these are really good, really good signs. And you bring up a great point, Matt. It's tough to 
know exactly where we are with this golf market in the United States, June, July, August, September will be the, the big months. Because if you think about it, last year you had some prominent states that had courses closed into the middle of May, second week of May. So by June of last year, 97% of the courses were open. So if we're really going to want to compare how things are going in 2021 versus 2020, those are going to be the months that we have to look at. But you know, think of um, how many businesses have got essentially 25% more usage after three months of this year compared to last year. I can't think of many industries that, that have had these type of numbers and they're fascinating to follow. And the, the public play one is very, very encouraging. Uh, that, that's obviously where a lot of people uh, uh, get their introduction to golf. And from there, they progress to playing at different types of facilities. And maybe one day they become an, a member somewhere and really pay some initiation fees and dues that lead to some great salaries for the people that mm -hmm. do it. In fact, not to go off on too much of a tangent here, but the GCSAA released this week their 2021 compensation and benefits report. And it, another big number here. Yeah, the average superintendent salary now is is what somewhere around 97,000, so it's just under 100,000. And when they first did that survey in 1993, the average superintendent salary was 44,000. So think of how far superintendent salaries have come in the last 30 years, basically. Well, and I'm a big fan of just BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics, inflation. So let's go to January 1994, just to take that into account. You said it was about $44,000? Yeah, in 1993, yep. All right, let's round up to 45000 in January of 1994, just to be safe. Adjusted for inflation, that's about $82,200. So the average, and that's that's the mean, right? That's not the median that they recorded. Yep. So the mean salary for a superintendent, and I'm assuming GCSA member, is about $15,000 ahead of where it should be just based on inflation over the last 27 years. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's a great job by the GCSAA and other advocates for the industry. And it's also a great job by those facilities that realize just how important the superintendent position is and making a effort to compensate them what they should be compensating, I'd argue that the compensation should be even higher when you think about the value a superintendent brings to every golf facility. Uh, a superintendent can easily save a golf facility $97,354. <laughs> and when I say easily, they can, they can make up that number pretty much mm -hmm. in, in a few months with how innovative they are and ways they find to get the job done with fewer resources and expenses. I thought you were going to say over the course of a year, and I was going to correct you, I'm, I, I was going to say, yeah, by Memorial Day at worst. But yeah, so a lot of progress has been made on this end, but I, I would say that a, a lot more progress can even be made here in the next two years and five years mm -hmm. and 10 years. And really, there's absolutely no reason a golf course superintendent shouldn't be making as much, if not more money than the general manager, at every single golf facility in the United States. Right. And that $97,000 mean figure does jibe with numbers from our state of the industry survey last year or earlier this year, really the average annual maintenance budget topped a million dollars for the first time. I think it was $1.044 million. The rule of thumb has always been uh, whatever your average annual maintenance budget is, 10% of that equals your salary. So if your maintenance budget is a million dollars, your salary is $100,000. And our survey always does tend to skew a little higher 
with private club respondents than the national percentage. Uh, so it should be higher. So yeah, that, that still checks out that, uh, about 10%. So if your salary is not 10% of your average annual maintenance budget, renegotiate. Yep. And some even more good news, uh, outings and events are starting to come back, mm-hmm. Matt. So we went to the, uh, research authority, our Twitter feed and put something out there earlier this week. We just asked, where are you at with events right now? We had three choices, full throttle, slowly coming back and not back yet. Uh, 65% of our Mm -hmm. Twitter respondents, and we we had around 200 responses on this, said they're back full throttle. 21% slowly coming back and 14% said not back yet. So I can even speak here for ourselves. I mean, next week we have our annual golf course industry planning meeting outing at Fowler's Mill in Chesterland, Ohio. Peak of course, tie design. that was one outing that did not get shelved last year because it's a <laughs> it's a small gathering of right, right. elite publishing minds. So we limit that to two foursomes. Elite, please. And then you know, three days after that, our publisher Dave Zai and myself are participating for the second straight year in a hundred hole outing at Illyria Country Club on Cleveland's west side to benefit the Orange Effect foundation which helps children with autism we played in that one last year too and that's one where you think about it getting people through 100 holes in one day you can't have too many people on the golf course so i believe they're going to be 12 twosomes in that group so dave zai and myself are going to be representing gie media and golf course industry again and then we have a big day on june 9th matt do you know what that is i don't know offhand what june 9th is before we get to june 9th i am curious just a real quick detour we don't have to go too deep into the weeds but because we did talk about year-to-date rounds just being up huge, and again, take it for what it's worth, with all these events coming back, do we expect that the rounds will drop a little bit just because you are losing you know, a day a week or a day every two or three weeks with these events when the course is not open for just round after round after round? It depends how the course handles it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, let's say it's a 9 a.m. shotgun and you have two groups on every hole. That's what? Eight times... 18 or you get around 150 140 players out there and then if you just open up back for play right after that shotgun ends you could be getting fair 300 people on the court i I guess it depends on the course and the the course's revenue models and management philosophies and what they want to do with it so i wish i had a scientific answer for you but (laughs) but we will learn a lot in june july yes august and september The, the the numbers for those months will be the most telling and as always just remember what Mark Twain said. There are three kinds of lies. There are lies, there are damned lies, and there are statistics. Wasn't there an 80s song about lies? There were a lot of songs about lies in the 70s and 80s, I'm sure. Anyway, so June 9th, man. June 9th. Big day for us. We're headed down to Dublin, Ohio. Oh, right, right, right. Keepers of this the Green. This is one of our favorite events each yeah. year. It didn't happen last year because of COVID-19. It's the Keepers of the Green outing uh, put on by our friends... Dr. Michael Hertzen and David Welchel, and we're going to see a lot of our industry friends there. And our fearsome foursome this year includes our intern, Jack Gleckler, our second-year golfer and second-year sales representative, Andrew Hurricane Hatfield, who maybe you've heard here on Superintendent Radio Network before. By the way, his podcast that you did with him earlier this year is like our second most downloaded podcast this year. We probably shouldn't tell Andrew that. It might inflate his ego. Well, a it was bit. it was it was the first podcast posted this year, so it's been up longer yeah. than any of the others. Yeah, and then okay, you'll be there, and then I'll be there. 
Yeah, I don't know if you're good enough to pull the other three of us up. We we might finish dead last. DFL, but we will have <laughs> a lot of fun. It is a great outing. Uh, benefits some great causes. You know, Dr. Michael Hertzen always has some of his uh, military friends there, and it's going to be an emotional day to 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 see that it's going to likely be the last time they've done it. It's going to be the twentieth one. I and- hope. I hope not. I hope. I hope somebody picks up the mantle. And runs with it. And it will be different, but if if anybody in the Columbus area or anybody else nearby who would want to come in or even slightly relocate the event wants to keep it going, a tremendous event that if it ends after 20, really 20 years, because it was founded 20 years ago and, and skipped last year, it would be a shame, but it would be a heck of a run. But if somebody were to pick it up, it would be a tremendous story. Yeah, so if our own little world is any indication... Golf outings are are definitely coming back mm-hmm. in our realm and where we live here in Northeast Ohio. So we're excited to participate in some of those. And I'm sure sometimes as much of a challenge as they pose for golf course superintendents, I'm sure a lot of our readers and listeners are going to be happy to see outings back on their golf course that do a lot of good and help a lot of people. And a lot of people have fun at. You have a tremendous golf bookcase. We've talked about this regularly. I I'm not really reading anything right now because I'm still trying to unpack boxes. Slow, slow, slow unpacker. I have shelved about my 3,000 or so magazines that I've collected over the last 30 years. But you are reading a couple of golf books. You finished one. You're reading one right now. And I think we mentioned the first one on a previous episode. I could be wrong. And that is Mel Lucas Jr.'s uh, Golf's Cause and Effect. And you're also spending some time with Bob Gillespie's and Tommy Braswell's South Carolina Golf. What do you want to talk about with those books, both good reads? Yeah, Mel's book, if you're in this industry, just get it. Uh, tremendous historical perspective in there. Really gives you great insight to how far greenkeeping and being a golf course superintendent has come. We just talked about the rising salaries and the increased awareness that a golf course superintendent is receiving, and all that's well-deserved. But uh, reading Mel's book really puts in perspective what our side of the profession that we deal with has overcome throughout the years and how challenging it really has been. You, you think things are tough in 2021, just read some of the anecdotes that Mel found for his book. And oh then, yeah. yep, I, I finished uh, South Carolina Golf by Bob Gillespie and Tommy Braswell. It's actually already in Charlotte and in the hands of Matthew Wharton. I sent it down <laughs> to him right after I finished it. Even though Matthew is a North Carolinian, uh, we're going to ha- educate him a bit on what happens uh, well, s- he's- south of the he's a virginian actually say, by birth yeah he's he's a north carolina resident but he is a virginian but he's a past uh, carolina's gcsa president yes. and he cares deeply about golf everywhere and especially in that region and yeah i met bob gillespie at the masters a few years ago we were walking into the media center together he was a longtime sports writer for the columbia state which is the newspaper in columbia south carolina and we've kept in touch and he sent me some messages about his book coming out and I ordered it, and it came out at the perfect time, right? Because we're hosting this podcast. In fact, it's going to drop the week that Kiwa Island Resort is hosting the PGA Championship at the Ocean mm-hmm. Course. So the book is basically a history of golf in South Carolina. Uh, it's a state that was the first state in the United States that, that have golf. So we talked about Foxburg Country Club being old. Well, Harleston Green in Charleston, South Carolina, was established in the late 1700s and only lasted maybe a dozen years. But so that was the first place golf was played in the United States in the state of South Carolina. They're very proud of that too. When you visit Charleston, the state has 
uh, seen its profile raised in recent years. It really started in the late 80s, early 90s, when Myrtle Beach was becoming a big golf travel destination. And then the Ocean Course hosted the War at the Shore in 1992, a Ryder Cup that is one of the most memorable events in golf history, really, when you study it and look at what happened on that final green with Bernard Longer and Hale Irwin and just some of the players and personalities and events that happened in that Ryder Cup. And then, of course, in uh, 2012, uh, the Ocean Course hosted a PGA Championship where Rory McIlroy blew away the field. And then in 2019, Country Club of Charleston hosted the U.S. Women's Open. So that was a really awesome event to watch on an old Seth Rayner design. And then, of course, the PGA Championship coming back to the ocean course. But a lot of us that have played golf over the last 30 years have just had some great golf memories in the state of South Carolina. I mean, you think about it, I would guess that the majority of the people who have listened to this podcast have been on a Myrtle Beach golf trip at one hmm. point or another in terms, you know, in their, in their golfing life. And uh, the coastal golf is great. Uh, you know, we talked about Hilton Head on one of these podcasts recently, and uh, Charleston's got great golf. But there's also great inland golf, too, in, in, in South Carolina. And golf is a huge part of that state's economy. And there have been some champions that have come from there. Beth Daniel on the women's side. Betsy King played her golf in the state of S South Carolina at Furman University, I believe. And, of course, uh, you want to go – more recent, Dustin Johnson is from the Columbia area and went to school at Coastal Carolina and still has a presence at TPC Myrtle Beach. So that's a great, great golf state. And my friend Bob and Tommy Braswell did a really good job of um, giving a reader a sense of everything that's happened golf-related in that state. Anything else that you're reading? Anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, I want to bring up one more thing. Sure. So the uh, Rounds for Research auction. Oh, right benefiting the GCSAA's charitable arm, the EIFG, and this is a program that supports turfgrass research throughout the country, ended here recently, and the final numbers are in. So uh, $336,500 were raised for turfgrass research that probably would not have happened awesome. without these funds. 1,100 rounds were won. And you know what course received the highest bid Winning bid for a foursome? I read it, and you told me, and I forgot, but it's like $7,000. Yeah, and this is a relatively new course, so a Hoopy Match Club. A Hoopy Match Club. In northern Georgia, okay. which is a Gil Hans design. Okay. I believe Rhett Baker's the uh, superintendent there. Yeah, over $7,000 for a foursome That's there. incredible. So. What, did you look at it? Was it like a bidding war? Or did somebody just go all in and say, I want this really bad? You know, I was in some bidding wars of my own throughout the week, so I stayed away from, from that high roller one, and... You know, we contribute it in our own little way to the cause, and we have, well, six six foursomes in 24 rounds of golf at various places. I am, it, I'm making one of those trips. I've already DM'd. Well, actually, we texted. I texted the superintendent there who will join us, and that's going to be a tremendous day. So, yeah, uh, what, what an awesome program. And, it, you know, next year, if you have a chance where your course can donate a round or if you have a chance to play some – bids on it, do it because you're, you're helping out the industry and you're funding some things that would never have gotten done without this awesome program. It is an incredible, incredible program year after year. And again, it was 300 what? 331,000? $336,500 wow. raised. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, Guy, I think we've done it. I think we've put a bow on another episode of Greens with Envy. My thanks again to Guy Cipriano, the 
uh, editor-in-chief of Golf Course Industry Magazine. My thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Spectrum Technologies. Visit them at specmeters.com, S-P-E-C meters.com. And my thanks to all of you for listening to all the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network. New episodes of Beyond the Page and Off the Course and Tartan Talks and Greens with Envy right here every Tuesday. Check out our May issue online, golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine, the cover story from Guy about Vineyards Golf Course in Fredonia, New York. You might have seen it earlier this year on TV on Small Business Revolution. Find out what it takes to unite two local nines into a single course. And you can, as always, get our fast and firm email newsletter delivered every Tuesday to your inbox. You can sign up online, golfcourseindustry.com, right on the homepage. Golf Course Industry is produced by Guy Cipriano and me, Matt Lowell. Our columnists are just the best. Terry Buchan, Henry DeLozier, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morrigan, and Matthew Wharton. We have some top-notch regular contributors. You hear their names regularly. You read them in the magazine. Tyler Bloom, Trent Bouts, Lee Carr, Ron Furlong, Judd Spicer, John Torsiello, Anthony Williams, and the aforementioned Rick Wolfen. Our publisher is Dave Zai. Our intern is Jack Leckler. Our sales team is Russ Warner and Andrew Hurricane Hatfield. Jim Blaney designs the magazine. Lori Scala makes sure everything goes where it should. Avril Braden and Christina Warner make sure you all receive the magazine. Kelly Antle makes sure we all get paid. Michaela Dodrill handles production. Irene Sweeney does everything. I don't even know. She's incredible. Tom Bauman, Patrick Briand, Anna Kolar, and Cody Minnick make up our IT team. Guy and I are very excited to see Cody's golf swing at Top Golf this afternoon. Thomas Vidmar handles our classifieds. Our president is Chris Foster. Above all else, we could not do what we do without you. Thanks so much for listening. Don't you love me too? Now I'm up in Somerset. And the snow plow ain't come yet, Pennsylvania turnpike, I'm stuck on you.